Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's begin with Paul Donovan. He is the chief economist for UBS, joining us from London. Paul Donovan, thank you very much for being with us. Um, Your most recent note uh, has to do with, as you describe it, the Italian job. And you uh, counsel uh, that everyone needs to take a deep breath and calm down. All right. So now that we've calmed down, what should we know? Well, I think what we should know first and foremost is that no one, is suggesting that Italy should leave the euro. Neither of the anti-establishment parties are suggesting it, and certainly none of the establishment parties are suggesting it. So any thought that that there's going to be some kind of existential crisis for the euro, I think, needs to be dismissed. What we have got here is a good, old-fashioned Italian political crisis. And you know what? They're not that rare. We've had 70 years of this. Uh, What we have is unstable government uh, and lots of internal politics going on in Rome. Well, what's so wrong about having a country that's in the European Union that doesn't use the euro? There's nothing wrong with having somebody in the EU uh, which doesn't use the euro. Uh, the UK occupied that position and will continue to occupy that position until next March. Um, but joining a monetary union and then leaving, that's different. Monetary unions are like Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. Um, because if you break up a monetary union, the prospect uh, of, of what that does to the economy is extraordinarily destructive. Um, You are defaulting on your debt. You are creating bank runs, instability in the financial system. You're wiping out the value of people's savings. I mean, it's no coincidence that in almost every single monetary union breakup of the 20th century, we either ended up with uh, extreme civil disturbance or civil war, or we ended up with authoritarian governments in some parts of the monetary union. We're just not going to see this happen. Um, Once you're in, you're in. Uh, You can't mess around with the value of people's savings, the value of your debt, the value of your obligations and so forth. So there's no way that you could maintain the current status quo of having your savings in euros and debts denominated in euros. You couldn't have a dual currency situation as they have in other economies of the world like Panama, for example. No, absolutely not, because you're starting from a, a position here where you know, it, it's all very well saying, OK, well, well, we'll keep Italy's debt denominated in euros, but we'll tax in lira. Well, where do you think the value of the new lira is going to be against the euro if, if you know, Italy were to leave the, uh, e, uh, the eurozone? The other point to bear in mind is you don't just leave the euro. If you leave the euro, you automatically leave the EU. You're breaking the Treaty of Rome. Um, which is you know, the founding institution and the constitution of the European Union. You know, if you're out, you're out. Um, and that then becomes yeah. extraordinarily problematic. Paul, so much of this comes back to economic growth. I mentioned earlier, folks, on television, The Guardian overnight has a wonderful article on the austerity of the United Kingdom. And within that, Paul, is maybe the austerity of Europe or certainly just the striving for economic growth. And yet things are better in Europe. That's been one of our themes this morning. Is Europe free and clear 
from the eurosclerosis of another time and place? I think, by and large, yes, Europe has emerged from the recession uh, that came in really from 2010 onwards in the case of the Eurozone. Um, but there are some problems with that. So we've got two essential problems. Problem number one is Italy. Unfortunately, whilst Italy has done better, it's still lagged behind the rest of Europe. And its banking system is a big part of that problem as well, where bank lending has persisted um, uh, as a negative force in the, Euro in the Italian economy. And then the second issue is that whilst cyclically I think Europe has recovered, structurally there are still challenges. The euro doesn't work properly. We know that. Um, but to be honest, I mean, the US dollar doesn't work properly either. And the pound sterling has one or two issues. But we're not making enough structural effort to make the euro work better. There are other impediments to growth across the eurozone, which also need structural adjustment. So I think in a cyclical sense, absolutely, Europe is on a better track. And there are some structural improvements as well. But it's not uh, necessarily on a, a very, very strong projection for growth over the medium term. I mean, within this, and, you know, the, the projection of growth in Italy is a distraction, is how it redounds over to the U.S. markets. I mean, we're going to open up today. I think, Pim, things are going to be better. I mean, that's the basic idea in the market tone right now. Paul Donovan, explain to our U.S. audience why they should care about Italy. Well, I think you should care about Italy um, a bit. I don't think you need to get overexcited about it, although that may be a little bit late to be saying now. Um, but I think you need to care about it a bit because it is an important part of what is still the world's largest economy. The world's largest economy is not, I'm afraid to say, the United States. The world's largest economy is the European Union, um, at least until the British leave it. And so it's an important part of an important market. Europe is very important to the U.S. as uh, an export destination. And remember, you know, the, the S&P is not a U.S. equity index, not at all. The S&P is a global equity index where companies are earning money through manufacturing, yeah. through providing <clears throat> services, and through trading globally. So that's why you know, Italy does matter. But, Paul, let me just challenge you here. When you talk about the European Union as one economy, you don't have consistent banking laws. You don't have consistent immigration laws. And you know as well as anyone, you talk to people from Italy, they're not even in, interested in the Italian debt crisis, the amount of money that their government owes. And most Italians that you talk to will tell you that unless you have either a family business or you have some sinecure, you're living at home waiting for someone to hire you or you're going abroad because that's where the opportunity is. Well, yes, I mean, Europe has uh, differences um, uh, in between you know, the nation states. Of course it does, although those differences have lessened over time. Um, but then, frankly, there are a lot of differences between, say, Texas and New York. Uh, the polarization of the United States and, indeed, the declining lead mobility in the United States is a different economic challenge. So I don't think we should be too concerned about this. Um, and northern Italy, at least, still has a very dynamic economy. Um, you know, the southern Italy is a, is a somewhat different issue, but northern Italy remains a very dynamic place in which to do business. And, and I think this is an important point to remember, we should bear in mind that Italy yeah. is one of the wealthiest countries on the planet, far wealthier than Germany is, say, and this is uh, an important saving grace because Italians own a lot of their own debt, 
Yeah. Uh, and that reduces the damage over time. Paul, one comment, and this comes, folks, is Mr. Soros's team sends me the transcript uh, uh, of his important speech yesterday, very cautious on the European experiment. Paul Donovan, somehow you would push against George Soros's gloom on your Europe. I think uh, that there is still uh, a degree of optimism about Europe. I think Europe has a number of advantages which are likely to become more important as we go through the changes of the fourth industrial revolution and, and so on and so forth. An aging population, which Europe has, becomes less of an economic problem as we get in robotics and automation. Because you know what? You can operate a robot at the age of 80 just as well as you can operate it at the age of 18. Uh, so an aging population becomes yeah. less of an issue. The skills and talents that Europe has, the education system, which has its flaws, but, you know, it right. provides good caliber education. That's a plus as well. So I think there are reasons to be optimistic uh, over mm -hmm. the medium term, not to downplay the challenges. But there, you know, we don't need to be in in a doom spiral. Right. It's not that bad. Doom spiral. Paul Dunneman, thank you so much with UBS. Greatly appreciate the effort from uh, their Zurich offices uh, this morning. We're going to do now, folks, with Italy on the brain. And, of course, a huge market moves yesterday to talk to a gentleman who can synthesize Italy for what it means for Europe, what it means for the United Kingdom, and what it means for America. And that's Sonny Kampour is actually hugely qualified to synthesize international relations and political economics. He's with Redefine, but that barely disguise, uh, describes his portfolio of knowledge on his Europe. Sonny, wonderful to have you uh, with us this morning, the cynic, not that that would be moi, but the cynic would say this is just normal Italy. They've gone through like 47 million governments since World War II. What's different now? Sonny, what is different in Italy now versus all the other previous collapses? Well, for one, we had got used to an unusual period in Italy's recent history. And for all that we criticized Silvio Berlusconi, the one thing he gave Italy was stable government. I think him alone brought down the brought up the average tenure of Italian prime ministers significantly. And him and Matteo Renzi and then the next prime minister. And now it seems that the sort of bad yeah. old days are back. And I think that seems to be the single biggest problem. Before 1999, Italy had sort of the pulling effect of the membership of the euro, the convergence, etc. And now that positive influence is gone, the fear is that right. Italy may continue to diverge from Germany and France as it has for the past 20 years. My colleague, Sonny Pim Fox, observed today that the Italian government of Rome is essentially removed from the Italian people. Describe the linkage emotionally of the Italian people to their Italian federal system. Well, Italy is, I mean, before you go down to the, to the region level, I mean, Italy is essentially two separate economic zones uh, cobbled into one, which explains the rise of 
the league, which used to be called the Northern League, and is primarily from the far more sort of Germanic uh, northern part of Italy, which has been growing, where GDP per capita has actually been growing, which has where unemployment is low and sort of work culture, institutions are sort of much better developed. It's quite Germanic in nature, whereas the southern half of Italy uh, is lagging behind economically. And a lot of what you see at the macro level outside and the political divisions, etc., are the fact that there are these two economically fairly distinct entities cobbled together into one country. And they just can't get their act together. Uh, therein lies the big contradiction. And that is why the political instability we are seeing now is not likely to go away anytime soon. This is going to be with us for, for a while to come. Uh, Sonny, does, uh, does Italy embody the contradictions that bedevil the European Union as a whole? At one level, uh, it's both sort of the best and the worst of Europe. Uh, if you look at the quality of life, if you look at the cultural richness, life expectancy, uh, most things actually work pretty well. Um, and the quality of life for most people is still pretty fantastic compared to most other places in the world. But it is falling behind. And, you know, from Roman times, it's been a story of steady decline, which has accelerated in the last century. And that is, I think, also one of the reasons why it is highly unlikely that Italians will ever choose to leave the euro or the European Union. This is the sort of last vestige of greatness, pretensions to greatness of being part of this core European Union as a founding member. Uh, otherwise, if you look at what happened you know, in the world wars, what happened since then, France, Germany, and the UK uh, have defined the destiny of where Europe has gone. Italy has only had a marginal role, whereas historically it used to be the exact opposite. And Italy sort of is desperately sticking to be part of the euro, which is the core of the uh, European Union, uh, because it still sees itself as a great European power. Um, and it's unlikely that that will change. Italy being thrown out or choosing to leave, the EU would be the end of that pretension. And I don't think Italians are ready for that. Is the, uh, is the euro a proxy for the former Deutschmark? Sadly, yes. Uh, the, given the weight of the German economy and this old saying you've heard before, Germany is too small for the world and too large for Europe. Far too many of euro-related policies are driven by yeah. Germany's economic weight. And the problem is, that the older, larger economies, and that includes Germany and France and to some extent Italy, what they need in monetary policy is very different from what some right. of the younger, more dynamic economies need, which need to catch up. Right. And the euro will always never be able to provide the right monetary policy for any of the well, countries. Sonny, let me ask you an unfair question for your remit of international relations, but let's pretend you're a market FX strategist uh, right now. To Pim's good question, if we're at 116, which is right where we were, well, at the advent of the euro, if Italy was to leave, where would the euro set for Germany? Like a 140, a 130? 
a 150? Probably not all that high, but it would definitely, the direction of the move will be very clear. It will be significantly higher than uh, where it yeah. is now. Let's leave it there. Sonny, thank you so much. Great brief. Sonny Kapoor with us with Redefine and uh, filtering in international relations and a lot of the market activity. You know, I just want to underscore what you just described, uh, what would happen to the value of the euro, because I don't think most people recognize that the value of the euro would actually increase. We are speaking with Megan Green, Managing Director, Chief Economist, Manulife Investments. And Megan, I'm wondering whether officials in Berlin and in Brussels, they've been rather silent about what's going on in Italy. Do you think that there are somehow rushed meetings behind closed doors asking themselves, what do we do with Greece Part 2? Yeah, so I think they're definitely talking about it. But what can they do, right? So back in 2011, if you recall, the ECB sent a letter to Rome saying, get your fiscal house in order. Um, Berlusconi had to leave a a few days later. And off the back of that, actually, Berlin gave uh, the ECB permission, essentially, to to give the whatever-it-takes speech and eventually unleash QE, Um, only because Italy had proven it was going to be fiscally responsible. This time around, you know, Frankfurt and Berlin and Brussels can't really pull that, because if they do, if they end up pushing out any government that is eventually formed, um, that will just embolden the populace. That will play out in the populace hands. And so in the next election, then you can only expect more support for populists. So they're kind of hamstrung in that sense. The ECB has come out and said, you know, Italy would be wise to remember the rules and to reread them, um, which is a bit of a kind of warning. But that's all they've said. I think that suggests the ECB is just going to sit by and watch what happens. As long as there isn't significant contagion outside of Italy, they're going to try to let the market impose some discipline on Italian politicians. Let us turn to America. And within all the data, uh, Megan, I saw 4.2% nominal GDP. I guess that's a little dampened inflation combined with uh, okay real GDP. Is that politically acceptable in America to have a run rate of 4 point whatever nominal? Um, So fundamentally, when you're looking at GDP and recoveries, especially in the U.S., you have to ask whose recovery it really is and whose growth is this. And there's, you know, huge and increasing inequality. So is that an acceptable run rate? It is for some. It's certainly not for all. And I think it's the lower classes that won't be lifted by that kind of growth. Um, Does the Fed adapt to that, to your good observation of two Americas or three Americas? So, uh, no, not really, I don't think. Um, The Fed sort of fed that in part with quantitative easing, so lifting up asset prices so that only those who actually hold those assets really benefit from it. Um, You know, they're keen to, they've they've, um, stopped buying up assets, they're reinvesting them still, but they're shrinking their balance sheet. Um, They're not really keen to fire up QE in the next downturn if they can avoid it for this exact reason. The Fed doesn't want to be in the headlines being told that they're responsible for rising inequality in the U.S. So I think that they would like to shrink away from that. I've got a headline here, Pim, and, and Megan would be perfect to talk to. Maybe you already did this. Uh, Wilbur Ross says U.S. trade process already bearing good results. Mr. Ross, our Secretary of Commerce, 
says, quote, U.S. in a situation of asymmetrical tariffs. Megan, what are asymmetrical tariffs? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, I think it just suggests that we're imposing more tariffs on um, other countries and they're imposing on us. Of course, that, that doesn't actually mean anything. Um, in a global economy, you have countries that are really good at making some things and not good at making other things. So they specialize. Um, and so everybody's not making the same goods and services. So you shouldn't have symmetric tariffs anyhow. That doesn't make any sense. Um, this argument that we're, we're, you know, our trade policy is already paying off, I think, um, is, is probably economically illiterate. Um, tariffs only introduce rigidities into an economy and create deadweight losses. And so yeah. nobody really wins okay. in the end from that kind of trade war um, imposing tariffs on one another. I, I, can I just say, I, I thought you were going to, and I appreciate the answer, but I thought that where you were going with, as you said, a headline was a tweet from the president of the United States. I missed no? that. No, well, he's just uh, about five minutes ago. Um, he's speaking uh, on Twitter and writing, um, sort of uh, channeling Representative Trey Gowdy, talking about Senator Sessions. Uh, you mean Attorney General? Yeah. Sessions. Well. Yes, but in the tweet is referred to as Senator uh, Sessions. Um, and the quote is, oh, by the way, I'm not going to be able to participate in the most important case in the office, meaning uh, Attorney General Sessions. I would be frustrated, too. And that's how I read that. Senator Sessions, why didn't you tell me before I picked you? And that is followed by a tweet that says there are lots of really good lawyers in the country. He could have picked somebody else, end quote, and then Donald Trump, uh, President Trump writes, and I wish I did, exclamation point. So I just thought I would that's share, important. share that. Yeah, no, I'm glad you shared that because that's important within the moment-by-moment uh, moment tick of uh, Washington. Kevin Cirilli, I thought, was really quite good today on the broad set of issues that yeah. has the president's attention. I don't, I don't want to well. uh, uh, derail the... Well, we're talking economics here, and, economics. And, and Megan, you've been so good at explaining basic stuff. Paul Krugman has written whatever anybody thinks of the laureate's politics, brilliant macroeconomics of trade, and this dreaded phrase, deadweight loss. What is a deadweight loss to America when we, when we impose tariffs? Yeah, so the idea is every time you introduce a rigidity like a tariff or a subsidy in an economy, um, some parts of your economy benefit. Yep. Um, so the government, for example, will be able to collect more taxes um, if tariffs are imposed. Um, and, you know, the other producers of that good will benefit because they have less competition. But then a whole bunch of actors will lose out. So consumers are the obvious case here because they'll end up having to pay more <clears throat> for these goods. Um, and so a deadweight loss is kind yeah. of the balance of that. There are more losers than there are winners. And within that, in with Within the modern economy, if we do tariffs on a certain product, say it's automobiles, mm -hmm. and China adjusts, they adjust for all the other countries as well. When they adjust their tariffs, it's not just about American auto manufacturers, is it? No, that's right. Um, that's absolutely right. And in the same way, when you know China agrees to buy more of our goods, it's not like we're going to produce more as a result. We're just going to sell more to them and sell less to others as well. So it all ends up being kind of a, um, a zero weight. These are the complexities, Pim, yeah. of, of certitude of simplicity. Certitude of simplicity? Yeah. Wow. People that don't know what they're talking about, who we won't mention, but uh, I, maybe that would include me. Say stupid, simple things. Where Megan is 
working in a more complex and dynamic range. I, I, I just want to bring up one topic that is perhaps more prosaic, and this has to do with the cost of energy. Okay. specifically the cost of gasoline. Yeah. Because if you've been driving around the United States, you know that the cost of gasoline has increased. Mm -hmm. Now, albeit it is very inexpensive compared to what most of the world ends up paying. Mm -hmm. Having said that, do you believe that the increase in the cost of gasoline is going to create any kind of economic drag? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think to answer it, we should look at what happened when oil prices fell significantly um, a couple of years ago. And we thought that would be a huge stimulus for the economy. And in the end, people just drove a bit more and households repaired their balance sheets. So it went into savings and they paid down some of their debt, which was a good medium to long term dynamic, but didn't boost growth. Um, I think now that oil prices are going up, we're probably seeing the inverse of that. So I think households are having to leverage up a bit and they're just driving less. I don't think it's a huge headwind. Um, it, part of it depends on how long this lasts, and I think it could last for quite a while. Um, but so far, I don't think it's a huge headwind on headwind on growth. Yeah. I think it does mean that consumers are maybe just leveraging up more, and so might be tapped out sooner. Megan, thank you so much. Megan Green with Manulife, and with John Hancock, greatly appreciate uh, your attendance uh, today. Megan Green writing worldwide. You can see her work writing worldwide as well. Right now, Michael Ferroli, we continue with Dr. Ferroli of J.P. Morgan uh, here on the American Economy. Uh, Michael, I was looking at Atlanta, Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta wage growth, their wage tracker, and uh -huh. I took out inflation. And I'm sorry, real wages, inflation-adjusted wages have a tinge of the United Kingdom to us. Are we going to get real wage growth? I mean, I, it's there, but it, come on, it's fractional. Well, this kind of brings us back to our earlier conversation yes. about productivity growth, which is, in principle, uh, if you know, if corporate the labor share is going to be roughly constant, um, which it hasn't been, but if it is, just for argument's sake, then real wages should grow at the pace of productivity growth. And if productivity growth, you know, has been averaging, you know, recently maybe a little closer to one percent, but on a longer term, right. it's a little below one percent, then it's going to be hard to sustainably right. get real wages up to two or three percent. Okay, but what's great here, folks, and this is out of the Booth School of Chicago, where Ferroli darkened the door, your idea of political economics in Chicago is to take more microeconomics. We get that. But yeah. but within the politics, what politician of whatever flavor and ever party can do politics in America with subpar real wage growth? The answer is, it, it, that's a crisis every day for a politician, isn't it? Yes, I think... Uh... This is, you know, it's no, I don't think it's any coincidence that we've had rise of, you know, populist parties all over the place in the wake of the Great Recession and that wage growth for 10 years has been pretty close to stagnant and that you see that uh, kind of frustration start to boil up in uh, the choices that people make in the ballot box. Um, you know, perhaps at some point expectations, uh, you know, reset themselves to what is actually deliverable from the economy. But I think, you know, we're living in the shadow of a post-war period when we had, you know, much stronger real wage growth and productivity growth. How long it takes to reset expectations, I think, is really hard to say. But it certainly seems to be one of the factors contributing to um, uh, the darker mood. And I think that's, that's affected some, uh, some of the politics around the world. 
Michael Faroli, we also live in the shadow of huge treasury supply, and I'm wondering if you could explain what that increase in supply means when everyone is looking at a yield curve and wondering whether it will or won't be inverted. Yeah, so I think that's a really tough question. You know, we there's been a lot, a lot of work done on the how much crowding out there is, which is to say, when we increase more treasuries to get people mm-hmm. to buy that, you need some kind of price concession and higher yields. Um, we'd probably guess, based on a variety of econometric studies, that the kind of increase in deficit projections based on the due to the fiscal actions over the past year may add about 20 or 30 basis points to treasury yields. Now, it's not clear that that should all show up in the long end of the curve or which part of the curve that should necessarily show up in at all. So, for instance, you know, a lot of people have been talking about the fact that earlier this year we had this big increase in bill supply and that may be one – treasury bill supply and that may be one of the factors that has influenced LIBOR, uh, LIBOR OIS spreads, the spread between effective Fed funds and IOER and all these – you know, rates in the short end of the complex. So is that crowding out? Well, perhaps, but that's also possible that it's happening uh, in the front end of the curve. So I'm not sure that necessarily crowding out uh, due to treasury supply and inversion uh, have to be linked or should be linked in, in the same conversation. I think inversion, in my you know simple way of looking at it, is more related to where we are in the business cycle rather than the structural deficits. And I think the fact that we're you know, no one knows where we are in the business cycle, but I think it's safe to say it's not early, right? So as the cycle gets more mature, natural to expect some flattening of the curve. Now, we haven't had inversion yet. We've just had flattening, and I think flattening, to me, doesn't look, you know, uh, weird given that the fact that we're very, you know, apparently late in the business cycle. All right. If we're late in the business cycle, where are we in the credit cycle? Uh, you know, I think, well... Uh, to me, it doesn't look like uh, the credit cycle is showing that we're, you know, getting overly frothy or exuberant, at least in the quantity uh, variables. So, you know, we often hear concerns about uh, the reappearance of household over leverage. I think if you look at the aggregate data, it's really hard to make that case. Uh, debt to income ratios have been stable, uh, very stable, actually, for about uh, five years mm-hmm. now. Um, so I don't really see it there. Uh, business sector, maybe there's a little bit more of a case to be made, particularly in non-corporate uh, businesses. Uh, but the data right. there, I think it's, it's a little tougher to say. But you know, I, I think perhaps we're we may be fighting the last war here, which is the last several wars. Which is, you know, the last few decades we've been accustomed to the credit cycle and the business cycle kind of moving together, and those being. Um, co-conspirators and how the the recession that ends the right. expansions arise. But if you go back, you know, further several decades, you don't necessarily need a credit cycle to have a business cycle. So you know, it could just be a um, a cycle in which cost prices right. are low, and then over time, due to you know demand running ahead of supply, like we talked about earlier, that that just generates the cost pressures that eventually get the Fed to. Uh, you know, to really put on the brakes. I don't think there's any sign of that you know, happening anytime soon, but it's not hard to tell a, a story if one wanted about that happening a few years out. Michael Froley, thank you so much, particularly that update on potential GDP, a shocking number below 2% for so many of our listeners. Dr. Froley is with J.P. Morgan.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.